0: Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, we look at the science behind the Shroud of Turin, and Greg Patton has another look at living in today's world. The Shroud of Turin is a centuries-old linen cloth that bears the image of a crucified man, a man that millions believe to be Jesus of Nazareth. Is it really the cloth that wrapped his crucified body? Or is it simply a medieval forgery, a hoax perpetrated by some clever artist? Modern science has completed hundreds of thousands of hours of detailed study and intense research on the shroud. It is, in fact, the single most studied artifact in human history. And we know more about it today than we ever have before. And yet, the controversy still rages. Here with a fascinating look at the science of the Shroud is James Collins and our
1: special guest, Barry Schwartz. The Shroud of Turin is a linen cloth that bears the image of a crucified man, a man that millions believe to be Jesus Christ. In 1978, the Shroud of Turin Research Project went to Turin, Italy. They were given 120 hours to study the mysterious cloth. Barry Swartz was the official photographer for the Shroud of Turin Research Project. He stayed awake for over 100 hours to photograph the Shroud. He has since become one of the world's leading authorities on the cloth, and he's here today to dive into the mystery of the Shroud of Turin. Barry, welcome. It's great to have you on the program with me today.
2: Thank you, James, and I appreciate the invitation.
1: Well, I'm sure that many of our listeners are familiar with you. You are in just about every documentary that I have seen on the Shroud. How did you become the official photographer for the Shroud of Turin Research Project?
2: Well, to be most accurate, I was the official documenting photographer. And Vernon Miller, who was a dear friend of mine and also on the faculty of Brooks Institute of Photography, he was the official scientific photographer because he had many more years of experience than I did at that moment in history. I had done a project with Los Alamos National Laboratories. I had my independent photo studio in Santa Barbara, California, and a local company was a contractor to Los Alamos National Labs, and they brought me on board as a photographic consultant for a seven-month project that had to do with atomic bombs. And it was all classified, so that's about all I can say about it. (laughs) But at the end of that project, the gentleman I worked with, a man named Don Devan, called me up a week or two later after we finished, you know, when you're self-employed and the phone rings, you immediately think, ah, the next project, hopefully. And so Don called me up. He said, what do you know about the Shroud of Turin? And I kind of laughed, and I said, but Don, I'm Jewish. And Don laughed and said, so am I, remember? Don was one of the other Jewish members of our team. He explained to me in rather technical terminologies, because he was an imaging scientist, that there was a property of this image on this cloth. And the way he explained it in technical terms, he said there's a correlation between image density and cloth-to-body distance, which implies some interaction had to occur between the cloth and the body. So that property of the shroud's image really caught my attention because I knew I couldn't create that photographically or artistically, at least not without using the shroud itself perhaps, as a guideline. When he asked me if I wanted to be on the team, I I initially said no, but the more I thought about it and the more he asked, he gave me some more information about the Shroud. There was very little available at the time, scientifically, but at the end of that, I ultimately decided to join the team, and I know others have heard me say this in the past, but Not only was I thinking about that image property, but I was also thinking about a free trip to Italy because I'd never been to Europe. So in all fairness, that was part of my motivation for being on that team. Obviously raised in an Orthodox Jewish home, I didn't have the emotional attachment to Jesus that any Christian would have. So I sort of, in a way, became one of the neutral parties on that team that didn't have any kind of horse in that race. And in the end, it allowed me to become a spokesman for the science. And it's kind of interesting that the skeptics don't want to debate with me anymore because they can't accuse me of having a Christian bias. Never had one.
1: Well, I would imagine that most people are familiar with the Shroud of Turin, but let's review what it is. Would you give us a summary? What is the Shroud of Turin? And what is it about the Shroud that makes this more than just some piece of cloth?
2: Well, Shroud of Turin is a 14-and-a-half-foot long, three-and-a-half-foot-wide sheet of herringbone-woven linen. And what makes it unique, of course, is that it bears the image of a scourged, speared, crucified, crowned with a cap of thorns man. Obviously, in my mind, the most likely candidate would be Jesus of Nazareth. What makes it so unique is that it bears an image, and although many skeptics still claim that it's just a painting or an artwork of some sort, our science, based on direct physical examination of that cloth, proved that it wasn't a painting, it wasn't a scorch, it wasn't a photographically made image, and to this day, in the most image-oriented era of human history, we all have a camera in our pocket now, No one has been able to create an image with the same chemical and physical properties as the properties documented on the Shroud.
1: Well, let's talk about the science. What kind of tests did the 1978 Shroud of Turin Research Project perform, and what was your conclusion?
2: Primarily because we were there, the primary focus was to study the image and to try and determine what constitutes the image. Is it a painting or a photograph or a scorch or a rubbing, as some had predicted? a lot of our experiments were photographic since we were only given a very limited amount of time to be in that room with that piece of cloth we needed to collect as much data as we could in the five days and nights that we were given so that we could come back and spend the next three years analyzing that data so photography played an important role not only did we do white light at natural color and black and white photography. We also did transmitted light photography with light passing through the cloth. We did ultraviolet and infrared imaging, thermal imaging, if you will. So a lot of our experiments were imaging oriented because of the image itself. We also did spectral analyses with the finest spectral technology that existed in 1978. We did X-ray fluorescence and reflectance again, to determine the elemental structure of what's on that cloth, basically like a chemical analysis without touching the cloth. But we also did chemical analysis of samples that were taken, lifted via tape from the surface of the cloth. So there was a broad range of testing. And of course, I always tell people that the data that we collected are primary sources based on direct physical examination of the cloth, and all of the papers published by the STIRP team In the successive years after we completed our direct physical exam are readily available for free on shroud.com.
1: Well, Barry, you're probably the second most famous photographer associated with the shroud. Secando Pia took the first photographs of the shroud in 1898. What happened when he developed his film?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting because he wrote that as he was processing, of course, he was using large glass plates back in 1898. That was before George Eastman invented roll film where you could put film onto a plastic or acetate base. And so he had these large glass plates and he had to take them back to his studio, to his darkroom to process the plates. And as he wrote, when he held up one of those first glass plates to open the shutters of the windows to hold them up and use it as a kind of a backlight, he almost dropped the plate. It happened to be a close-up of the face and his comment was, I was looking into the face of the Lord. Those were his words. So it obviously had great impact on him. And of course, those results became public. And that was for perhaps the first time that anyone outside of northern Italy had ever even heard of or seen the shroud. And of course, he was immediately accused of some sort of darkroom fraud. And it took until 1931 when the second photographer, Giuseppe Henrier, was given the opportunity to photograph it again that verified all the conclusions that were drawn by Secundo Pia, and so he opened up and everybody said, okay, so Secundo Pia was telling the truth after all. But, you know, there's still skeptics out there with all the science and technology and all the data that's been published. There's still skeptics who say it's a painting. But, you know, you really can't have a painting if there's no paint.
1: Well, if the shroud is a fake, how could the artist fake a negative image? Because when the photograph was developed it, uh, of course, shows that it's a negative image. How could someone in that time period fake that?
2: That's a very good question. And just for those who might be listening who weren't quite clear, because today a photographic negative is something rather obscure to younger people who haven't got a clue what that is. So what a photographic negative does is it exposes the film, and the more exposure, the brighter, the lighter an object is that's being focused onto the film, the darker the film gets. So, in other words, the lights and darks on a photographic negative are inverted from what our eyes would see. And so the lights and darks on the shroud, when inverted onto a photo negative, yield a much more realistic positive result, implying that what's on the shroud has the properties, at least one property, of a photographic negative. So you're right. There's no way that someone in medieval times could have understood the concept of a photographic negative, because it didn't exist. I think the first photograph by Joseph Nietzsche for Nietzsche was taken in 1826 and the glass plate still exists in a museum, I believe in Texas. So we know that the shroud wasn't made that way and that it's very unlikely that a medieval artist could have even conceived of an image of this nature, let alone captured it with forensic accuracy. There is no way that this piece of cloth is an artwork. Period, And the science proves that.
1: What about the blood on the shroud, Barry? If it's not paint, is it animal blood or is it human?
2: Dr. Alan Adler, who was one of the other Jewish members on our team, was a blood chemist. And considering the technology that existed in 1978, Al Adler was a very cautious man who was not going to jump to any broad conclusions. So his first comment was, well, it's at least primate blood but he believed it was human blood. Now, interestingly enough, today we have newer technologies 44 45 years later, and some of the technology we have today could it be applied to the shroud could answer that question more definitively than the testing that our team could perform based on the limitations of the technology at the time. So, to this day, they have not allowed another round of tests like the ones that we performed. And if we could apply 21st century technology to the shroud, perhaps some of the questions that remain unanswered or perhaps some of the questions that were raised by the data we collected could be answered if another set of tests would be permitted.
1: Barry, isn't it true the blood stains on the shroud go through the cloth, but the image doesn't?
2: That's correct. The image itself. Lives on the top surface of the fibrils of the cloth where the blood stains actually penetrate via capillarity through the cloth and are visible on the reverse side of the cloth. No image visible on the reverse side of the cloth. The image is superficial and literally lives on those topmost fibrils just a few microns deep on the surface of the cloth. And I mentioned earlier about the transmitted light photographs I made with light passing through the shroud wherever blood had soaked into the cloth or wherever there were water stains which came from the 1532 fire when they dumped water on it you know, to protect the shroud and keep it from being burned up, those water stains at the peripheral, because of capillarity, carry dust and dirt particles to the edges of the water stains, and they're visible with transmitted light, but the image itself is not visible. It's so superficial that it doesn't even show up obviously did not penetrate into the cloth. So that was one of the first pieces of scientific evidence that we had that the shroud was not a painting, because if anybody had applied paint to that cloth, we'd have seen that immediately in the transmitted light images and perhaps folded up our tent and come home.
1: Didn't your team also find limestone on the shroud?
2: There was some found it in the area of the feet. There was some limestone found. Some people have identified it as to limestone that would be found in caves in the Jerusalem area. I don't know if that's been definitively proven scientifically. I'm always careful about that. Ray Rogers, the lead chemist on our team from Los Alamos National Labs, used to call me up and yell at me for using the word proven by telling me that we don't have enough data to say that. You can say that all the evidence points in that direction, but you can't say it's scientifically proven. So Ray taught me about empiricism. Yeah, he was kind of the old gunfighter of the group. That was my nickname for him in Turin. But he also reminded me that I think I see is not a scientific statement. And he would say that very frequently as well. I think that what we have on the cloth, if one really wants to know what's there without any bias, without any opinion, you can go to read those papers that were published where the data is there for everyone to see. You know, you can then make up your own mind about the cloth. That's what it says in the opening paragraph of shroud.com there's a sentence that says, given the facts, we believe you have to make up your own mind about this. So we're not trying to tell anybody what to believe or how to believe. We're saying, here's the evidence, you decide.
1: Barry, I want to quickly look at some of the common objections. Some would object and say that thousands of people are crucified, so how do you know this is the shroud of Jesus Christ? What evidence is there to prove that the image on the shroud is that of Jesus of Nazareth?
2: Sure. We have the gospel accounts of what was done to Jesus. And although scourging was rather common, and crucifixion was very common, spearing in the side to make sure somebody was dead or to see if they were dead, not common, and crowning with a cap of thorns, as far as we know, has only occurred once in history, and that was to Jesus of Nazareth, who had proclaimed himself king of the Jews, so they... To humiliate him, they put this nasty thorn bush on his head to give him his crown, and we have blood stains on the head from the cap or crown of thorns. And when you add all that up, there's only one person documented anywhere in the historical record that had all those tortures applied to him, and that was Jesus of Nazareth.
1: Barry, there are some, mainly those in the evangelical community, who object to the authenticity of the Shroud because they say it is Catholic. Would you answer that objection?
2: They say it's Catholic. I hear that often. So I have to point out, I ask the same question to the audience. So when did the Catholic Church come into control of the Shroud of Turin? And, you know, people say 1st century or 12th century or whatever. And the answer is 1985. Right. So, Up until then, it was owned for almost 600 years by the Savoy family, the monarchy of Italy. They owned it until King Umberto, the last King Umberto II, the last Duke of Savoy, died in 1983, and he left the shroud not to his son and not to the church as an institution, but to one man, the living Pope, so that only one person would have to make a decision as to what might or might not be done with the cloth. So when I hear that it's a Catholic relic, I say, yeah, since maybe you could call it that since 1985. Interestingly enough, I've attended many conferences, and one evangelical conference, I was there for three days, and for the first two days people kept coming up to tell me why the Shroud was a fake, and so I was making notes (laughs) from my evangelical friends. On the third day, I was given the opportunity to get up and make my presentation. I started with the top five reasons why some Christians are Shroud skeptics, and they were typically quoting from the Gospels, and just as an example, they told me that, well, this man on the Shroud has long hair, and Paul in Corinthians says long hair is forbidden. And I have to point out that was written 20 years after the crucifixion and didn't apply to Jesus. Jesus followed the laws of Moses, and Jewish men to this day in the Orthodox tradition do not trim their beards, side locks, or hair because that was required by Jewish tradition. So, by the way, that article I wrote is available on Shroud.com five reasons why some Christians are shroud skeptics. We've just covered one or two of them, but there are several others that I discussed as well.
1: Barry, I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with me today. I have followed your research for years. I even have one of your photos hanging up in my office right now. So I thank you for your time. Thanks so much for a great conversation.
2: Truly my pleasure. Thank you very much, James. (laughs)
0: Barry Schwartz was the official documenting photographer of the Shroud of Turin Research Project, the team that conducted the first in-depth scientific examination of the Shroud. His perspective is invaluable, and it's now available on DVD. Shroud Science is a DVD that offers three different presentations with two and a half hours of information and analysis of the single most studied artifact in human history. Order Shroud Science today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Pastor and author Greg Patton stops by now with some thoughts on relationships as you and I are living in today's world.
3: Well, kind of wondering today if all of these thoughts have come to life because I'm getting older and I'm valuing more and more relationships with our association with the radio station down in Tennessee. We have so many friends in Tennessee and Virginia and North Carolina and, well, all over the place. And I really value those. It's a really big deal. Before I was saved, I could care less about friends. Even told my wife more than once, hey, if you don't like my lifestyle, what I'm doing, there's the door. Well, I was really stupid then. And, of course, unsaved relationships. How many do you have? How many friends do you have? How many will be at your funeral? Something to think about. Well, I think this is a real important message. How are you in your relationships? Family, friends, they're at church. You know, most people say that relationships are the most important thing to them as far as life goes. In any other facet of life, nothing is as important as a real relationship. What kind of goals do you have for relationships, or do you even think about it? Probably not. We all have relationships that could definitely be improved, and often the missing ingredient is a long-overdue apology. There you go. Let me ask you something. Why is it so hard for you and I to apologize to someone? We have a natural tendency to gloss over what we've done wrong. Really, we do. We may hope that if we don't acknowledge how self-centered or thoughtless we've been, no one's going to take any notice. No one's going to reproach us for that. You know, ironically, the opposite is true. Others are hesitant to forgive when we don't seem to really get it. After all, aren't we likely to just hurt them again? Do you think men and women have different apology languages? In the book entitled The Five Love Languages, Dr. Gary Chapman Made an intriguing suggestion that in order to be heard by other people, we need to speak not in our natural language or giving and receiving love, but in the language of the listener. Now, that's good. That really is. The premise is also true when it comes to the way that we give and receive apologies. Have you ever tried to apologize to someone only to be rebuffed? But yeah, it may be that you were speaking your own language to them, one foreign to the other person. Learning to give the most successful apology can begin with asking people you care about what they most need to hear to feel someone has actually apologized to them. Understanding their personal language will give you targeted apologies that hit the mark and impart the full measure of your sincerity. You know, for men, being accurate and winning the debate, whatever it is, is the primary importance in life. Did you know that? To the woman, feelings, of course, feelings are the central importance. Women say in those husband-wife disputes that even though the guy apologizes the woman, she needs to hear that he's concerned about the way she feels. Perhaps you're thinking today, hey, what if I don't want to apologize? We may lack the motivation to overcome our pride. That's a big problem in any Christian community, any church today to give up our desire to be right and to apologize. We may try to avoid shame and preserve our self-image. That's so important to us, isn't it? It may be easier to pretend that we haven't really done anything wrong, to sweep that thing under the rug and maintain that childlike notion that if we don't face something, it really isn't there. It's gone. Unfortunately, though, glossing over our faults just seems to foster more and more resentment. Jesus Christ died because we all missed the mark in life. We need Him, Jesus Christ, to save us from our bondage to sin. It's only when we humbly acknowledge our sin that we can embrace the fullness of God's mercy, both mercy from God, I guess, and from other people. Those cheap apologies yield cheap grace. We must move beyond our old patterns to embrace true understanding and true forgiveness today. The Scripture repeatedly tells us of the importance of an apology. If we claim to be without sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. By the way, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free, John 8:32. If we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 8, and 9. He who conceals his sin does not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Proverbs chapter twenty-eight verse thirteen. Confess your sins. There we go, one to another. Have you done that? Have you ever done that? Confess your sins to another and pray for one another, so that you will be healed. Says James five sixteen. When you feel the Holy Spirit's conviction and sensing His call to apologize, you ought to act with an urgency. Do your part. Do it now to repair that problem, whatever the rift is. One woman says her seven-year-old son loves to build models, and he was delighted to come across an unopened box from her husband's childhood. And after all those years, an unassembled wooden model of the Wright brothers' airplane still lay tucked away in a closet at the grandparents' home. The plane was very intricate. I watched from a distance as he and my husband assembled the pieces that looked no bigger than matchsticks. Before it was complete, they ran out of time and set the model in a basket on top of the refrigerator for the glue to dry. Sadly, the safe place was not entirely visible to this vertically challenged short mother. I continued to toss books and papers into the basket as usual, and soon they discovered that their very special project had crumpled back into little-like toothpicks "'under the weight of my deposits in the basket. "'He no longer likes for me to scoop him up into my arms, "'but I wanted to show him my sorrow, "'that I was really sorry for what I'd done, "'so I put my arms around him and told him how sorry I was. "'I'm sorry. I crushed his treasure. "'It's important to note that even though I hadn't intended to harm anything, "'I still needed to take responsibility for the damage I had done.' In addition to reassuring my son of my love, despite my carelessness, I need to either find him a new airplane or learn how to put toothpicks together in a meaningful way and help rebuild this airplane. Question is: anybody got glue here? Yep, a sincere apology is a really precious gift communicating to the receiver that he or she is deeply valued. Further, it smooths path of true forgiveness and reconciliation. May you surprise someone today with humility and boldness and transparency as you apologize. How does that sound? Oh, I know it's a toughie. Resolve to repair that relationship today. Pray about it and then do it. Barry Schwartz
0: was the official documenting photographer for the Shroud of Turin Research Project, the team that conducted the first in-depth scientific examination of the Shroud. His perspective is invaluable, and it's now available on DVD. Shroud Science is a DVD that offers three different presentations with two and a half hours of information and analysis of the single most studied artifact in human history. Order Shroud Science today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Tomorrow, Billy Crone will begin a brand new series revealing the lies and deceptions of COVID. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchmen on the Wall podcast. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries, and it's supported by faithful listeners just like you. Visit SWRC.com.